Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. In this episode, Ian Kelly talks about his great aunt, Elizabeth O'Farrell, her role in the 1916 Rising, her work as a midwife in Hollis Street, and her legacy. Listen to the Tricolor Ribbon, sung by Antoinette Heary, and to Ian reading Liam MacUshthin's poem, We Saw a Vision, and to divisional librarian Anne-Marie Kelly performing her original vignette, Elizabeth Looks Back part of a seminar held in Dublin City Hall on the 25th of April 2016. Firstly, on behalf of all our family, I'd like to say many thanks to Dr Mary Clark from Dublin City Library and Archives for organising and inviting us, all of the family, of Elizabeth O'Farrell here to this fantastic venue today. I'd also like to thank the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Creonini Galley, for receiving us here to City Hall on behalf of the people of Dublin. And finally, I'd like to thank Elizabeth Darcy for the magnificent work on restoring and conserving the proclamation donated by our family. So thank you very much for coming out. Just regarding the proclamation, I think it's the most important words that were ever put to paper in Irish history. Um, when Parik Pierce wrote this with the help of Connolly and made it so inclusive for everybody. It was so far-reaching ahead of its time. And even at that time, it's a magnificent uh, piece of work. And it's great to hear that this proclamation that we have for the people of Dublin will be will last forever. So hopefully future generations will, will read it and uh, take on board what it says, and especially in the last few years, the way the country is moving forward now, rather than looking back all the time, I think the proclamation will always be ahead of its time. So, and it's interesting to note, I just copped this in the last few days while reading it and studying it, that Ireland, to me, always was uh, in the feminine. It's, it's, she's regarded as she, and she, it's mentioned 12 times in the proclamation the word she and her. So Pierce was obviously well aware of the inclusiveness and the fact that women were equal and obviously, if not more important than men. We, we, we really only sit in the background, maybe. The women run the show. So, so this confirms that. And it was highlighted by Yeats in his play, Kathleen Nihulahan, which he wrote in 1902 and staged in the Abbey. And this, again was before the rising so they obviously knew this Gaelic movement that women had a really important role to play coming forward in the rising and there are just a few words I wanted to say about the proclamation we are we are absolutely delighted that this was found and restored and we always knew our family would have given away things all the time they would have given Joseph Plunkett's suit was given away the stuff you touched on an area Mary People didn't hold on to things. They weren't materialistic like today, but it was great that it was, it's there and it's preserved for all time. So moving on to the, the main act today, which is Elizabeth O'Farrell. Firstly, I'd like to introduce Antoinette Heary, who's a friend of mine. Not unlike most people in Ireland and in Dublin, Antoinette would have a connection as her granduncle, James Heary, was in the GPO with Elizabeth during the week of the rising. So, Antoinette is going to sing us a song now, and it's a song that 
would have been heard in our home in McGuinness Square, which was Elizabeth's sister's house. And most Sunday nights we gathered there, and this song was mostly sung in that in the house, and it's called the Troy Colour Room. And please join in the chorus if you know it. I'm sure a lot of you do. I had a true love if ever a girl had one. I had a true love, a brave lad was he. And on fine Easter Monday, with his gallant comrades, he started away for to make Ireland free. So all around my hat, I wear a tricolour ribbon. All around my hat, until death comes to me. And if anybody asks me, why do I wear it? It's all for my true love, I never may see. He whispered goodbye, love, old Ireland is calling. I over Dublin, the tricolour flies. In the streets of the city, the foeman is falling, and sweet birds are whistling, old Ireland arise. So all around my hat, I wear a tricolored ribbon All around my hat, unto death comes to me. And if anybody asks me, why do I wear it's all for my true love I never more may see. The struggle has ended, they brought me the story. The last spoken word that he said unto me. I was true to my land, love, and fought for her glory. And gave up my life for to make Ireland free. So all around my hat I wear a tricolored ribbon. All around my hat unto death comes to me. And if anybody asks me why do I wear it, it's all for my true love. I never more may see. Thanks, Antoinette. That was fantastic. So I'm just going to move on to the story of my great aunt, Nurse Elizabeth O'Farrell, whom you all know was the woman in this iconic photograph with the leader of the Rising Party, Pierce, at the moment of surrender to General O, commander of the British forces in Ireland. I'm often asked how she came to be in this position. Well, I want to share with you the life behind this woman. So, Elizabeth was born at City Quay in Dublin on the 5th of the 11th, 1883. Her father was Christopher Farrell and her mother was Margaret Farrell, née Kenna. She had one sister, Bridget, who was her grandmother. She was christened Elizabeth Farrell without the O, which was purposely dropped. This was quite common at the time as a way of avoiding ethnic discrimination in a country that was rife with it. 
This was her father's second marriage. His first wife was a Mary Connolly, and he became a widower when Mary died. Mary was from Lower Mount Street, and Margaret was from City Quay, so he kept his courtships to the local area. <laughs> he didn't marry anybody from Ringsdance. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> so Elizabeth, in her formative years, attended school at the Sisters of Mercy on Townsend Street, along with her best friend, Julia Grennan, and Julia would have been known to all of us in our family as our Aunt Sheila. She was the Aunt Sheila. So Sheila was from nearby Lombard Street and would remain Elizabeth's best friend throughout her lifetime. And the two of them quickly became inseparable as they both developed a love of the Irish language and Irish culture from quite a young age. And in fact, they were listed as fluent Irish speakers on the census of 1911 which was highly unusual. They both became members of the Gaelic League and in Yenina Heron, which they joined in 1906. And that had been founded by Maud Gawne. And the intent of this organisation was to help promote all, all things Irish, as in Irish products, the language and the culture. And at the heart of the movement was also Irish independence and the right of women and children which years later were also at the core of this proclamation we see here today. Her father, Christopher, died in 1907 when she was still relatively young, and out of necessity she took a job in Armstrong Printers on Amon Street. So at this stage of her life, along with Sheila and many members of her family, including both by grandmothers, she became very Republican in her thinking. Many years later, she said that her Republicanism was already in her soul at the age of 16. I really believe this was fostered by an era where there was no TV, no internet, and probably more importantly, no pubs open on Sundays. So that meant that people could gather, families could gather together, sing songs, tell stories, and talk about, more importantly, politics and freedom. All of these feelings of republicanism and rebellion were fueled by the poverty and deprivation in Dublin that was particularly prevalent among the Catholic or lower classes. And at that time, Dublin was the second city of the empire, but was also widely acknowledged as the biggest slum in Europe. So the only way out for most local boys and men was down to the docks or join the British Army. So it was around this time, 1913, that the Irish Volunteers were founded as a direct counter to the UVF that had been formed in the north to fight home rule. So Elizabeth joined Common Amon on its foundation in 1914. Initially, 250 women joined the movement and they came up from all sections of society with no discrimination, but had one common goal, and that was Irish freedom. They actually considered themselves to be the women's section of the Irish volunteers. Their agenda was to fight alongside the men in the struggle for freedom and during a rising if and when it came about. So like all women in the movement, Elizabeth would have been trained in the use of firearms, transport of weapons, dispatches to the volunteers and nursing. And this training was overseen by Countess Markovic and the great doctor, Dr Kathleen Lynn. Coming Amon was also heavily influenced by the suffragette movement in its desire to further the rights of women to vote, hold political sway and improve social conditions for the underprivileged and especially for the children of that time. So this would manifest itself later in the wording of the proclamation. 
In this respect, their biggest ally among the future leaders of the Rising was James Connolly. Given that the backdrop to this was the devastating effect that the 1913 lockout had on the working classes. It also must be remembered that the generation of the time still had first-hand family experience of the Great Famine and all its awful consequences, as well as a view, strong view, that the ruling British were to blame. All of this led to an immense cultural, socialist and patriotic revival, which already had led to the formation of many bodies like the GAA, the Gaelic League and the Trade Union Movement. So now to the rising. So in the build-up to 1916, Europe was in turmoil, and without doubt the British focus was elsewhere as they fought a devastating and horrific war on the European Western Front. Uh, in fact, the events of the Great War and the total disregard for human life, particularly for the foot soldiers, probably influenced the subsequent decision to execute the leaders of the rising. At this time, Home Rule agenda was gathering pace, leading to tensions between the Southern Catholics and the Northern Protestants, and it's possible to believe Home Rule could come about, and it could have led to a civil war in Ireland. So even though there wasn't a general uh, groundswell of support from the general population, the rebel, belie- the rebel leaders believed that this was the right time to strike for freedom. And in the build-up to hostilities, it must be remembered that communication methods were still pretty basic. And given the number of informers that had already, always been the bane of the movement, this was quite dangerous. So on the eve of the rising, Elizabeth was dispatched by O. MacNeill, who was, who was originally asked by the IRB to lead the forming of the Irish Volunteers. And she was ordered to Galway to inform the volunteers that the rising was cancelled. 
And little did she know that Pierce himself had countermanded these orders and was intent on proceeding with the rising. So when she got back to Dublin and realised what was happening, she headed straight to the GPO along with the other women volunteers and she set about nursing and feeding the soldiers. So later in the week, as the fighting intensified, Pierce ordered all the women to vacate the building, except for Elizabeth and two others, Winifred Kearney and Julia Grennan. In fact, they actually refused to leave the, the building, the GPO, um, and he couldn't persuade them otherwise. So they remained there until they became futile, as the GPO was in ruins, and the order was given to evacuate the building. So they then left the side of the building on, onto Henry Street with Connolly on a stretcher. And under heavy gunfire with the remaining volunteers, they made their way down the laneways to 16 Moore Street. So they witnessed some horrific things, uh, sights actually on that journey down the laneways. For instance, there was a young girl uh, called Bridget McCain. She was age 15. And she was shot dead at her home on Moore Street. And she was killed by a bullet that pierced her forehead, which had already passed through her father's shoulder and right lung. And Parik Pierce himself, on hearing what happened, said, my God, I'm sorry this happened. What can we do? And it was also on this journey that the O'Rahilly lost his life. So under siege, and after three people, another three people bearing white flags coming down the laneway of Moor Lane, Pierce decided enough was enough. So in number 16, Moor Street, when they broke through all the buildings, and people would be very familiar now with it, they, they, they called it mouse holing through the different buildings, and they saw it, decided to hold a council of war there. So the women were actually set aside to do their room uh, with... Julia, Winifred and Elizabeth and the Ryzen was then uh, it, was, it was going to be called off and this is probably one of the most significant parts of the week, it probably is the most significant part, so Pierce knew all along himself that the Ryzen was going to be in his own words a glorious failure and he needed a trusted volunteer to approach the British position and offer a conditional surrender uh, so he, the trusted volunteer was Elizabeth, and it's remarkable because he didn't pick any of the other volunteers, the male volunteers. He went straight for Elizabeth, and I think he was making a, a massive statement to the British that he wanted a woman alongside him to do this. So Elizabeth, at 12.45 on Saturday, the 29th of April, under heavy fire, she approached the British position, waving a wife handkerchief. And with a great deal of good fortune, made it to the commanding officer. So this commanding officer was at the bottom of Moore Street, and behind him was all guns pointed down Moore Street, actually where the O'Rahilly was killed. So they were still firing as she was making her way up that street. So she was quite brave uh, to do what she'd done. Like, it was amazing how she actually made it up to the barricade. And then... The officer at the barricade, he was flabbergasted that a woman should be in this position and announcing herself as a volunteer, which in all certain terms she did announce herself as a volunteer. And at first, they assumed she was a spy and she, they removed her Red Cross insignia and t detained her until two, around 2.25 that afternoon. And 
they said to her, go back to Pierce and tell him there would be no terms and that only an unconditional surrender would be accepted. And she was also instructed that Pierce was to come with her to the position at the corner of Moore Street and Parnell Street to surrender to General Lowe. She followed the instructions and at 3.30pm General Lowe received Commandant Pierce and Elizabeth at the designated point leading to this now immortal picture we see here, which was for the purpose of newspaper reporting was unfortunately doctored to remove part of her image. At this time, General Lowe asked that Elizabeth be the one who delivered Pierce's surrender orders to the various rebel garrisons around the city. And she, being Pierce's comrade, for want of a better word, she asked him, would that be okay with him? And he said, yes, uh, he agreed that it would be. So in the hours after surrender, Elizabeth continued her role as a dispatcher, delivering those surrenders orders to the rebel garrisons. So she made her way around a lot of the city, still in danger of being shot, because a lot of confusion was going on, and how she survived it is a miracle. So all of the liberties went off, and she finally needed to get to Boland's Mills, where De Valera was the officer in charge. And on the way, she came under heavy fire, and I live in the area where this shooting took place. It's on Grand Canal Bridge, and I walk between Grand Canal Bridge and my house. I walk it every day. And on this way to Boland's Mills, a man just beside her was walking along, running alongside her, and he was shot in the back and fatal uh, injury to himself. So, indeed, it is a miracle that she survived. So when she got to Devil Era, of course, he, f he, he refused to take the order unless it came from Commandant McDonough. And it's no surprise that he, he, he wouldn't take the order from a woman, you see. So she had to track. So we all know the story there. So she, she had to go back to town and return with McDonough's orders. In fact, she didn't get back down with the orders. He, McDonough delivered the orders, got the orders back to Pierce uh, to Devil Air herself, and I think that instilled her in later life when we when we're talking with the family. She had a high disregard for Devil Air. She didn't put him up on the pedestal that people thought of Devil Air, and she obviously had a lot of her own reasons for that, you know. Um, so after all the dispatches were delivered and the volunteers had surrendered, she was subsequently removed to Kamenim Jail where despite previous assurances by General O, she was strip-searched, had all her possessions taken and from her, and was treated as a prisoner in the true sense of the word. So when she protested, she was told by a British officer, don't be silly, sure, we know that for the fact that you, you shot six British soldiers. So it's remarkable that, gen that the General and his commanding officers recognised her bravery and the role that she had played, even though she was clearly a committed volunteer. And as a result, the general kept his word and she was released from Kamenim jail and all her possessions were returned. So when we, we were growing up and you talk about what actually happened among the family, it was agreed that General Law would, he actually was a gentleman. So in terms of the bigger picture of the, the rebels and the war itself, everybody like to behave properly in the situation they found themselves in. So even, for instance, when I heard yesterday that the guys who took the tram at the town 
he paid for 52 tickets. He didn't just hijack the tram and, and left them in IOU. So they were very careful in what, say even if they took food from a shop, they leave an IOU in the shop. So everybody got fixed up later on. So it's remarkable how they went about their business and, be, and behaved properly. So, um, and as a footnote to this release from Command of Jail, uh, she, she actually had in her possession 13 pounds in gold coins, which was given to her by a, say, by a young volunteer. And this was this young man's wedding fund. And he was in lodgings, and he took the money, the gold with him, gold coins, to the Royston. And uh, on Easter Monday, and rather than leave it in the lodgings, he actually gave it to Elizabeth to mine for him. So in many ways, they were simpler times, and this is the way the people behaved, which was amazing. So I want to move on now to the famous airbrushed, iconic photograph. And there are many theories to, to why this photograph doesn't show, show her more clearly, but two in particular are the most believable. Firstly, is Elizabeth's own account when she stated that she wanted to get out of the way as not to detract from Pierce at that historic moment. And the second accounts for the airbrushing, which is believed, happened so that Irishmen fighting in World War I wouldn't be stored against the British by photographs of Irish women fighting for Irish freedom at home. Um, I think there's so much uh, speculation on the photograph, uh, I would actually go with the latter, but we might never know the reason. Uh, she wasn't a very extroverted person. She was very introverted, but I do believe the way she was positioned and the way she was airbrushed was done by the British not to show her in her true light as, as a rebel as well, as a volunteer. So uh, post-Rising, as you say, the rest is history. Uh, the execution of the leaders became the most potent weapon in driving public opinion in formation of a republic. So this was Maxwell we'd all be well aware there was two generals, there was General Law, and then he was replaced by General Maxwell. Maxwell came over from Britain and had experience all over Asia, etc., as a general. So he would be the type of guy who would have, uh, when I think of the young volunteers that crossed Mount Street Bridge to share with foresters, he sent them over the bridge because they were large in numbers, and Malone and Darcy, who were positioned on Morehampton Road, uh, sorry, in Northumberland Road, they, there was only two of them, and they picked off 200 young soldiers. And these young soldiers thought they were in France, but it just gives you an insight into the way this emperor worked with their young foot soldiers. They were willing to sacrifice 200 young lads over the bridge. They get shot, 30 of them are killed. And their bodies, I've heard from a funeral director in town, it was Nichols' funeral. They say that in their records that they actually placed the bodies in the laneway behind uh, Northumberland Road and uh, the bodies were then taken by the undertakers to Glasnevin and as well they were also placed in a massive grave. So there was no real regard for, they were cannon fodder basically. Uh, so getting back to Elizabeth and the women's movements, nothing changed as they continued as before with their struggle for freedom. Uh, the revolution had to begin again after the rising, and sadly this was a different revolution. And in Elizabeth's eyes and most of the women, the, I'd say 100% of the women in Kamanaman, uh, the focus now was anti-treaty. 
So in reality, these strong-willed women were never going back to the kitchen sink, as Elizabeth herself was quoted as saying. The war wasn't over. So, but in fairness to, to them, they had won major victories for the poor and for women's rights. So, for example, in 1921, women won the right to vote in Ireland a full seven years before the British counterparts, which was an amazing achievement. It's small if we look at it nowadays, but at that time it was an amazing achievement. So Elizabeth herself then returned to normal life, if you could say it was normal life. She still was very active uh, in the background uh, during the War of Independence and post-treaty. Uh, but she had a, a lifelong ambition to, to have an education and become a midwife. So it, in early 1921, she started her training in the Hollis Street Hospital. And uh, she passed her exams where a basic exams with a 69% score and was described by the matron as a fair nurse with a fair education. <laughs> right, so that was quite funny, you know. At the time, I suppose, matrons being matrons, that's the way they were. But before I, before I move on regarding the matron, uh, I just want to go back to Hollis Street itself, the hospital. Uh, I, we, the family, we were invited to Hollis Street there just three weeks ago by the master it was great to see as a woman, Rona Homani. She's the first lady master of the hospital, and we re we were allowed. I was allowed access to the records in the hospital of what happened in Easter week, and one young girl uh, came in to have her baby, but she had been shot in the leg, and it's recorded during the week. But in fact, the baby was a healthy baby was delivered, but in the middle of the women giving births during the week, there was also the rising going on all around the area, whether it be Mount Street, Grand Canal Street, the back of Hollis Street, and I just came across something there. It would have been a neighbour. This lady would have been a neighbour of Elizabeth's, and she's from a place called Grants Row, which is actually again just around the corner from from us. So uh, she explained uh, Margaret Hennessy was her name. She was from Grants Row near Hollis Street. She has given an account of the British Army attacking the family home and shooting her father and brother. This was in, within 15, 20 feet of the hospital. So the father died in Hollis Street Hospital because he was taken in there, and our brother never recovered and died two years later. And she was 12 years of age, and she, she had witnessed the removal of 100 bodies from Hollis Street Hospital. And they were also, by the British, and they were also taken and buried in a mass grave in Glasnevin. So as a 12-year-old, this had a huge influence on her uh, for want of a better word, but she actually ended up herself becoming a member of Cumanamon on witnessing this. So the activity around the local area was incredible, what was going on. So getting back to Elizabeth's subsequent idea of becoming a midwife, she, as I said, uh, she passed her score uh, with a 69% score. And I say the matron herself, getting back to the matron, I don't think she has a plaque named in her honour and a Nurse of the Year Award, which Elizabeth has in recognition of her decades of devoted service to the hospital. And for that matter, Elizabeth, this month coming in May, has her face with Kathleen Lynn on a stamp. So even to this day, she's still delivering. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she lived in 37 Lower Mount Street, is where she set up residence with, uh, with Julia Grennan, her aunt Sheila, and they lived there, and they, 
Julia was a dressmaker. She went back to her dressmaking days and worked away. And Elizabeth became uh, one of the major midwives in Dublin, not just in the area. She actually delivered babies in the locality and also delivered all the babies in my own family. And they're all here today. And uh, Maya being the eldest girl and Breed being the youngest, uh, or sorry, the last baby that Elizabeth delivered is Breed, and she's here today. So there you go. <laughs> so um, throughout this time, Elizabeth never lost her devotion to republicanism. And in the 50s, after the border campaign went wrong and John South was killed, she delivered a speech what I thought was on College Green, but in fact it was outside the GPO, because a gentleman just pointed that out to me on the way in here today, Simon's brother, uh, this man down here. He was actually present when Elizabeth gave one of her last speeches, and it was a massive crowd outside the GPO, and she wasn't one for turning, as Thatcher said later on, but she wasn't one for turning at all. She believed in the 32 county, which she stood alongside Pierce for. And as well as that, I'm noticing nowadays that we're living in a society where we're all equal, which is fantastic. And a lot of people don't know that Elizabeth was actually engaged to be married to a man, a chap called Eamon Kelly. And Eamon was intent on moving to Chile to mine for silver. But when push came to shove, um, Elizabeth couldn't leave Ireland uh, with unfinished business. So every extent, her marriage was to the cause. Recently, I also met, you meet some amazing people when you're on this journey, it's great. We were invited up to Arbor Hill and I met a lady by the name of Nuala Fitzgerald at a commemoration in Arbor Hill. And she's the niece of Michael Malone, who we would have mentioned earlier on from Northumberland Road. And she's also a niece of Leo Fitzgerald, who were famous in, in a way from the area, the local area where we come from. And this lady was also a great friend of Elizabeth and Sheila. And she was one of, the, Maya would know this, and she was one of the last people to see Elizabeth before she died. Elizabeth went out to Enniskerry to visit Nuala and her husband. And on this trip, she took ill. In those days as well, it was quite simple. Nuala got the husband to go down and get the bus man to drive the bus up to her house, collect Elizabeth, and bring her back into town. But they got as far as Lockdownstown. She she still was she was dying at the time, and they got as far as Lockdownstown. And uh, Sheila actually remarked to them in in Lockdownstown Hospital that she she wanted her brought back into the city, in through Bray into into Patrick Dunn's. So she reminded the man who was driving the ambulance of who Elizabeth was, because Sheila Sheila was. I'll just go on to her for a second. She had a more outgoing personality. She was the more Jollier of the two, Elizabeth would have been quite stern, wouldn't have been not, not, not non-dramatic, where uh, Sheila, in other words, she could talk for Ireland, so basically that's what she could do. But um, So they made her way back into town, and uh, Elizabeth, she died on the 20, 25th of June 1957, and is buried in the Republican plot in Glasnevin Cemetery, alongside Julia Grennan. And her great friend, Eamon McTomas, gave the oratory at our graveside. And Eamon McTomas would have been uh, a fellow Republican. Uh, and his son uh, became one of the historians 
just recently, in the last number of years, is Shane McTomas, and he tragically died just recently as well. And he's actually buried with Eamon beside Elizabeth. And, and they loved Elizabeth through Eamon. You could sense that often when I, when I met them. So the Elizabeth O'Farrell Foundation was set up in Hollistry, and a medal is awarded to the Student Nurse of the Year each year. And in fact, it's going to be awarded again this year. And I think Maria or Francis is going to attend and the hospital. They want people in the family to, to acknowledge this and award the medal to the student of the year this year. And also uh, the, within Hollistry, if you're familiar with Hollistry Hospital, when you go in the door of Hollistry Hospital, you see a plaque. And that was designed by an architect artist called Gary Trimble. Uh, these would have been friends of, of Elizabeth's originally, hence they lived in Mount Street. Uh, and it was unveiled, this plaque was unveiled on the 50th anniversary of the Rising in 1966. And our mother, Una, is the face that was used for Elizabeth, such was her likeness. So when I go into Hollis Street and my daughter just recently had a baby there, I can see my mother on the wall. So that, that's, that's good, you know. And, and my grandson is called Porrick. Uh, I thought she called him another name. It's a long story, but that was just quite unintentional. So it's, it's great to see that there's still a great presence there and I must say the people in the hospital actually really recognise the women uh, who were involved, Kathleen Lynn, Elizabeth O'Farrell, all, Stopford Price, all of these amazing women. It's great to see that their story is being told now and, and it's coming to the fore which is fantastic. So um, and I just spotted here this lady over here is called Mary Murray. So in 2006 a chap called Donald O'Kelly and a, a lady called Barbara in the Quive approached me about the story of Elizabeth O'Farrell and he wanted to stage a play in Kilmainham Jail. And so the, the play was to run for a week and the last play that was held in Kilmainham Jail was actually by the volunteers back in the day. They put on the odd show if they were allowed. So Mary played Elizabeth O'Farrell in the play and she's done such a remarkable job. The likeness that my sister Moya thought that Mary was Elizabeth. She, in fact, she was, so it was fantastic. Um, so the proclamation which Elizabeth had in her possession in the GPO, which is on display here today, uh, it was originally donated to a Republican museum, Mary tells me, in South Frederick Street. And in 1966, I'm told by me, my sisters, it was lent in trust by our family to the people of Dublin. And it's fantastic to see that it's restored and it's amazing that uh, it'll be there. And we're happy that it's with the people of Ireland and the people of Dublin because there's few artefacts around that you can honestly say uh, that you can be proud of. And I think we're all proud of uh, the proclamation in itself, it's remarkable. So, Elizabeth herself, I think a life's ambition can be summed up in a conversation she had with my grandmother in the mid-50s. Now, my grandmother's name uh, was Bridget. She's the, and I have to really state this, she is the only sister that Elizabeth had. There was two sisters, Bridget, and Bridget herself was a strong Republican, and Bridget had all the babies. So Bridget was the woman who got married and Elizabeth uh, stayed single. So her grandmother was also a remarkable woman and was also a great woman for delivering babies as well. So, and actually my mother was also handy at delivering babies too. So they didn't need to go to hospitals or anything like that. So, uh, 
So they, they took a trip out to Sandy Mount Strand and I think I think the way they taught in those days that uh, my grandmother would have predeceased Elizabeth. But in fact Elizabeth died before before Bridget. So one of the days they had off, which was very unusual, the place you would go to if you lived in their area was up to Sandy Mount Strand. So they sat on the beach in Sandy Mount Strand and looking back on life, how lucky were we said my grandmother to Elizabeth and you were very lucky Bridget you had all your children around you but I didn't get what I wanted and that was a 32 county Ireland so um, on that note I'd just like to uh, I'd like to dedicate this poem it's called We Saw the Vision by Lee Lee McEuston and it's uh, and I think it's very appropriate because it I think it nails exactly what the proclamation is all about and the vision for the country and what it'll do for future generations. So he wrote this for the 50th anniversary in 1966 and it's on display up in the Garden of Remembrance. So it's, uh, we saw the vision. In the darkness of despair, we saw the vision. We lit the light of hope and it was not extinguished. In the desert of discouragement, we saw the vision. We planted the tree of valour and it blossomed. In the winter of bondage we saw a vision. We melted the snow of lethargy, and a river of resurrection flowed from it. We sent our vision to swim like a swan on the river. The vision becomes a reality. Winter becomes summer. Bondage becomes freedom. And this we left you as your inheritance. O generation of freedom, remember us, the generation Thank you. And we're just going to finish now with another poem about Elizabeth O'Farrell. And this here is my colleague, Anne Marie Kelly, who is a self confessed Elizabeth O'Farrell groupie. I think perhaps even more so after today, Andrew. Yeah. But um, Andrew is also a divisional librarian with Dublin City Libraries, and she has been one of the people who has delivered the wonderful 1916 programme that was done by the libraries. So there you are, Andrew, whenever you're ready. I'll match Lee McKishton's poem now. I think it's a, a bit more bawdy. <laughs> The title of this poem um, sketch is Elizabeth Looks Back. Drastic and all that this may seem, but I think the women of Dublin should stop having children. You see, I know they're jaded with it, but not half as jaded as us midwives. Although, if they stopped having children, I'd be without a job, I suppose. And that would be bad. But worse still, the country would be without future rebels. And of course, it's in the delivering of rebels that was, is, and always will be the aim of this midwife. 
And who are you, says you, in all that's good and holy, to be telling us what this country needs? Well, sorry, I should have said. The name's Elizabeth O'Farrell of City Key. Some say history airbrushed me. A printer, a rebel, a midwife am I, a woman who looked General Lowe in the eye. You see, I was there that week in the GPO, a proud common member who fought the foe. MacNeil, he really set the cat among the pigeons with a decision, a decision and an unholy revision. A no-look for casement and the ammo. And you see, that did make the fight a tale of woe. Yet still we struggled against the empire. You see, we were dreaming of a world beyond this quagmire. Well, by the end of the week, the city was in chassis. The fire brigade, they'd saved it for the masses. The rebels' names were mud for upsetting uh, the apple cart. And sure, what cared we? Weren't we doing our part? Pierce surrendered with me in tow. And sometimes you can see my feet below. <laughs> Rebel woman in the photo who helped her nation was rubbed out. Did somebody say rubbed out? Yes, says I, rubbed out when the struggle was won. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.